Father, we ask that you would be our vision, that you would help us to see as you want us to see. We recognize that sin blinds our vision, our field of vision. We reduce things. We don't see your activity in the world oftentimes. Open our eyes. We pray that the scriptures would um, help us to see. As your word says, they're a lamp to our feet. And so we pray that you would um, enlighten our steps uh, so that we can make our way through the world as you call us to. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's, it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in the book of uh, Genesis. And you may remember a couple, two weeks ago, we considered... Jacob's dream, his vision. Uh, and Jonathan Dorse, the pastor, was here, uh, associate pastor at River Oaks in Tulsa, was preaching to us. And one of the things that he said is that oftentimes in scriptures, dreams speak of reality. We're going to see that with Joseph. You see it with Daniel. And it's true of the Jacob dream. Remember the dream? The heavens open up. And a staircase comes, reaches down to earth and there's angels ascending and descending upon it. And Jacob realizes that, that what the world is like, right? That there is a breaking in of heaven. That, that what we see is not all there is. That divine activity is going on throughout the world. And Jacob's response to it is, how awesome is this place? That I'm in. The world is not an ordinary place, and there is more more than meets the eye. And the world and creation of which we live in is laced with the activity of God. It literally is the activity of God. Everything we see is God's spoken word of creation. This, This is the activity of God. If God was to stop speaking, Everything would vanish. Everything would disappear. We would cease to be. Right now, at this moment. And so, um, and, and, and this is what the Jacob dream says as well. It's not as though God has kind of, you know, the, the blind clockmaker that's put everything, he's made a little clock that works according to all these laws and mechanisms, and he just throws it into the universe to tick away. No, God is actively involved in his creation. And Jacob concludes this, and, and he he, he says in chapter 28, verse 17, how awesome is this place? And we're in the same boat as Jacob. I mean, how awesome is this place right here that we're in? God is, is with us. His Spirit is with us. How awesome is it that, I don't know if you uh, were able to work at Restore OKC as we're serving those in need, that there is the prospect that we have entertained angels through our service of those in need. That's what the book of Hebrews says. The activity of God is all around us. And there's more than meets the eye. And you would think that all this would kind of raise our little spiritual antennas and we would be deeply attuned to God's hand in our lives. And yet, we often kind of float through life, numb, distracted, numb by our screens, distracted by just the 
myriad of diversions, and we miss the heart of reality. We miss the activity of God in our lives. We're like the little characters in the Matrix, just walking around the busy, the hustle and bustle, the busy streets, just oblivious to what's really going on. And so every week we come together uh, to to worship, and and you could think of it like this. Our gathering together is a tune-up. We're we're, uh, making our our hearts, our our souls, we're tuning ourselves to this activity of God, to the fact that this is our Father's world, and He's at work within our lives, and He's at work in the world around us. We're reminding ourselves of that. And so I believe this passage of Scripture is going to also remind us of that. You'll see the title is Prayer and Providence. Those are going to be the two points that we'll consider today, uh, prayer and providence. So first, let's, let's consider prayer, and we're going to kind of just real quickly summarize the story that's, that's happening here. Jacob leaves this dream site, where he sees this incredible vision, and he makes his way, and he comes upon a well. And you read that he comes upon a well, and you're, in our minds we should be going ding, 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 well, well. He, Isaac, Isaac sent Jacob to find a wife. Isaac, the Abraham's servant, if you remember in, back in Genesis chapter 24, Abraham sent his servant to find a wife for Isaac. And remember where it all went down, where it all happened? At a well. And here's Jacob looking for a wife in the same part of the world, in the same country, and he comes upon a well. Well is where emotions run high. Sparks fly at wells, apparently. So we hear well, and we think, okay, this could be something's happening. And he begins conversing. There's shepherds that are there at the well. Look at verse 5. He says, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, we know him. He said to them, is it well with Laban? And they said, it is well. And, and look here, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. And so they're there, they're kind of talking. And eventually, Jacob's like, are you guys going to do anything today? <laughs> you can just hang out at the well all day. He says, it's, it's high day. There's a lot of day left. Are you going to send your sheep out to pasture? And, and they're not the most industrious bunch of, of workers. They're, they say, no, we're waiting until all the sheep come. And then when all the sheep get here, we'll roll the stone away, and then we'll water sheep two or three at a time, line them up, and then when all that's done, then we'll go to pasture. And so along comes Rachel, Laban's daughter, and what does Jacob do? Verse 10, he rolls up his uh, cloak. You can imagine him kind of showing a little bicep, perhaps. And he shows himself to be incredibly strong. He rolls this stone. This stone would have taken two to three men to roll aside. And Jacob rolls it by himself. You might, you might think he would probably maybe want to be a little, you know, sort of discreet. Even if I could roll it, I'm not going to, like, put on a show here. But Jacob's playing hero ball because the beautiful Rachel has arrived. He's trying to impress Rachel. So he rolls this thing. And by the way, you know, Jacob, we, we think of Esau as the hunter and the chopper of firewood, and Jacob's the homebody that cooks and likes to be intense and all of that. But here we see Jacob is, is an ox. He's a strong man to roll this stone. It's, it's pretty remarkable that he does it. And then he offers to, to water Rachel's sheep. 
Verse 11, he kisses her, not a romantic kiss, but a kiss that um, a family member would greet another family member with, and he weeps. We're also seeing that Jacob is emotional. He's in touch with his, his feelings. You know, he, remember, he's been on a, um, he's a refugee. I mean, he's on the run from Esau, his brother, who wants to murder him. It's a long journey. He comes empty-handed, and he's, at last, he's made it to his destination, He's made it to family where he can get a good meal and perhaps find a wife. And Rachel tells her father, verse 13, uh, that uh, family has arrived. And it says, verse 13, As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him. And he embraced him and he kissed him and he brought him to his house. Sounds like a, just a wonderful family reunion that just happened, doesn't it? We know a little bit about Laban. Remember Laban back in the last chapter 24? You remember, you remember when Laban ran out to greet uh, Abraham's servant? It's, it says when he did. He's, it was when he saw that Rebecca, his sister, had a gold ring shining, you know, dazzling in the sun as she ran down. the. She had earrings and necklaces that had been given to her from Abraham's servant. So Laban's thinking, ooh, we got a we got a wealthy visitor come to town. I need to roll out the red carpet. And he comes out. He goes, come on inside. And he gives him this huge greeting. But we know, we know Laban's ways. Laban has motives. And it says that when he heard news of, of what Jacob did, I think the news that he's hearing is that Jacob is as strong as an ox. And Laban just got a, a strong man to work for him. And that's exactly what uh, takes place. Laban says, after a month of, of living with Laban, Laban says to Jacob, verse 15, because you're my brother, my kinsman, should you serve me for nothing? We've put you to work, but let's pay you. Tell me, what shall your wages be? And Jacob, who, by the way, I don't know if I said this, Rachel is stunning, it says. She's attractive and physically attractive in every way. And Rachel has been smitten by her beauty. And look at what he says. I'll serve you seven years for your daughter, Rachel. That's lavish. Uh, in this age, a, a bride could have been purchased for about a year to two years of, 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 of wages of a common worker. Seven years, well beyond that. And Laban says, uh, look, look, look at what Laban says in verse 19. So Jacob says, I'll, I'll work for Rachel seven years. And this is what Laban says, verse 19. Well, it's better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. Now, did Laban agree right there? He didn't agree to that. He said, better you than somebody else. But that doesn't sound like a handshake deal kind of thing. But Jacob, again, is so overwhelmed. Just remember, remember how Esau, um, when, when, when Jacob tricked Esau and, and, and gave him the bowl of soup for the birthright? Esau couldn't see past the little bowl of soup before him. And he just, he like missed all the promises of God for a bowl of soup. Jacob's operating in a similar way. He, all he can see is Rachel in her beauty. He's not even listening to Laban. 
And he works for seven years. Only it doesn't seem like seven years because of his passion for Rachel. It's a joy to work for Rachel. So the year, it goes fast. And then Jacob says, and I think this is a clue that what Jacob is experiencing is maybe not so much love, but a, a lust for Rachel. It says, verse 21, and this, this is to, this is to, uh, this is offensive, what he says. It's just as offensive as it sounds. In fact, it's probably more offensive than it sounds in your English translation. He goes to Laban and he says, give me my wife so that I may go into her. My time is completed. Fathers of daughters, would, would you like your son-in-law to come, or your future son-in-law to come to you? Give me my wife so I can have relations with her. It's time. And so Laban throws this feast. And as the night goes on, as, as the daylight, the sun sets, and darkness comes in, in and as Jacob uh, gets slightly more drunk, perhaps, given the fact that it's a feast, Laban pulls a fast one on Jacob and gives Leah, his older daughter, his firstborn, to Jacob, unbeknownst to Jacob. And Leah is described as being weak-eyed, and we don't know exactly what that means. Some have said she's cross-eyed. Some, the, the, the main point here is that in contrast to beautiful, stunning Rachel, Leah is an ugly duckling. Leah is probably the daughter that Laban has always been thinking, how in the world am I going to marry her off? And so he takes this as his opportunity to, to marry her. And verse 22 says, uh, Laban gathered together all the people. They made the feast. In the evening, he took his daughter Leah. He brought her to Jacob. And Jacob um, slept with her. He went into her. And verse 25, in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And we see what goes around comes around. Jacob, the heel grabber, the supplanter, his heel has been grabbed. He's been supplanted. He's been tricked. Listen to how one commentator put it. Remember, remember Jacob who stole the birthright from the firstborn Esau, his older brother, by, to his father who was blind? Listen to what one commentator says. In Genesis 27, that happened. Two brothers were exchanged by a trick before a blind man. And here, two sisters are exchanged by a trick. In the darkness of night and behind a veil, the, the wedding veil, which eliminated Jacob's sight of Leah. And so Jacob wakes up stunned, shocked at who's next to him in bed. And he storms out of his tent and he goes to the tent. He starts banging on the tent of Laban. And he says, verse 25, what have you done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why have you deceived me? And then look at what Laban says. This is really important. Look, look at verse 26. It's not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Let me, let me paraphrase. Laban says, oh, that's right. Jacob, you're not from around here. I forgot. You came from, a, from another country. Here's how we do things in my country. The firstborn gets married first. I don't know what it's like in your country, but in my country, firstborns 
are entitled to things. Firstborns get blessings like marriage. I don't know how things work back where you're from, but that's how we do things around here. And Jacob, he's cut to the heart. Laban's taking a knife and wiggling it around in Jacob's heart. And how do we know that? Because Jacob, who is angry and irate and storming down the door of Laban, next thing we know, head hung low, turns back, goes to the fields and works another seven years for Rachel. Jacob gets hoodwinked, and Laban is digging the knife into his heart. And he indebts, uh, Jacob indebts himself to Laban for double the years, and he gets Rachel, and we learn that, he, that Jacob loves Rachel more than Leah, and there will be repercussions for that. Remember the favoritism of, of Isaac and Rebekah towards their sons, and now we've got a favoritism in a marriage, um, and this will be a total mess as we move forward. Uh, and, and we'll get to all of that eventually. Um, and so here we are. We've got this mess of a situation. And you may be scratching your head and you thought, well, I thought this was about, I thought this was prayer. I didn't see any prayer in any of this. Very perceptive. There was not a single prayer issued in any of those verses, not one. And I think that's the point. There was no prayer, there was no leaning into God. I said that this passage is, um, is to be, I, I believe, is to be understood and interpreted in light of Genesis chapter 24. It's a, it, it, Jacob is an example of what not to do when making major life decisions. But Abraham's faithful servant, who Abraham charges to go find um, Isaac, a wife for his son. Do you remember that faithful servant? The, 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 if you have Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 24, because we're going to do some comparing. I think this is important for us to see. It invites, the, the, this whole chapter here is inviting a comparison to chapter 24, where, where we see Laban first. So remember, Jacob has this incredible vision of the heavenlies. He's heard from God, but he's not walking. Jacob is not walking in light of the vision that he received. He's not walking uh, a praying life. His community builder group didn't read a praying life. Make that plug. The servant, the faithful servant on the other hand, is walking faithfully and prayerfully through all of it. Jacob, here's, a, here's a contrast. Jacob comes to Laban's country empty-handed, a drifter, a refugee with nothing. The servant, on the other hand, the faithful servant, enters in loaded with wealth and camels and all sorts of riches. And when the servant arrives, look at verse 12 of chapter 24. What does he do? As Rebecca's making her way to the well, just as Rachel was making her way to the well, what, is, what does the servant do when, as Rebecca is making her way to the well? He, he prays. He prays to God. Verse 12 of, chapter tw- of Genesis 24. He prays. He says, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today. Show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say drink, 
and I will water your camels. Let her be the one that you've appointed for your servant, Isaac. And Rebecca does all of this. And look at what the servant does. Look at verse 21 of chapter 24. So she does all of these things that he prayed, and then the servant gazed at Rebekah in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. The servant is praying. The servant is silently reflecting on the moment to discern God's will and whether God is at work in this situation. And then following his, his confirmation that God is leading, verse 26 of chapter 4, the servant bows down his head and he worships the Lord. He says, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who's not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has, has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. So he prays. He exercises silent reflection of God's activity in his life. He worships the Lord for, his, for, for God's blessing upon his journey. And the fact that he found a wife for Isaac. What's Jacob doing? Putting out the vibe at the well. He's, he's, he's leaning into the stone, his own strength to push the stone and impress Rachel. If, if, the, if, the, if the faithful servant is leaning into God, Jacob's leaning into his own strength. See, the servant is living in accord with reality. He recognizes that God governs creation, that he's good, that he hears our, the prayers of his people. And Jacob, who had the vision, is not living in, in light of that vision. He's saying, I got this. I'm strong. I can impress Rachel, I'll do what is in my power to get this beautiful woman that I see. He's, he's acting a lot like his brother Esau, whose impulse is, drives his behavior. And what, what happens when you live out of step with reality? You become delusional. You become mistaken. You become blind. You become ripe for deception. Laban is a trickster, and Abraham's sh uh, shrewd servant, the faithful servant of Abraham, he, he sniffs out Laban's trickery. Do you remember? Do you remember how he interacted? In, in, in chapter 24 again, verse 33, he sits down at the table, but it says he refused to eat any of the food that was put before him so as not to indebt himself to Laban. He says, I've got, well, slow down. I'm not, I appreciate the meal. You guys are kind and everything, but I've got business that I need to take care of. We need to find a wife for my servant's son, or for my, for my master's son, uh, Isaac. So let's work out a deal. And he works out a deal. Sober. Attuned to Laban and his trickery. And then remember the next day, the next morning, Laban's singing a different, he says, yes, we'll, we'll let you have Rebecca. And then the next morning, Laban says, actually, wait a sec. We thought it'd be best if Rebecca hung around here for a few days or decade. So he says, for a few days or ten, which a lot of commentators think means a few days or, or uh, ten years. Just hang around here for a while. Remember what the servant says? Whoa, wait a second. I think we can all agree. The Lord has prospered my journey. Are you, this is uh, verse uh, 20, or 56 of chapter 24. The Lord has prospered my journey. 
Are you going to, Laban, are you going to get on the wrong side of God's providence? It's not a good idea. And Laban says, well, let's let Rebecca decide. And Rebecca says, I will go. See how, you see how this shrewd servant is walking carefully in the midst of Laban's trickery? Jacob's not. Jacob is subject to deception. He's too busy playing footsie with Rachel at the dinner table to pick up on Laban's tricks. His passion for Rachel, which, as I said, I think is probably better understood at this point as a lust for Rachel based on verse 21, it blinds him. It makes him so blind that when he is knowing his wife, as the Hebrew would say, he has no idea who she is. He has no idea that there's been an exchange made of sisters. He's too drunk to know. And this is what happens when we don't lean into God in prayer and praise. When we busily just kind of scoot through life, not giving God much thought. We become blind. We become delusional. We become susceptible to deception. We walk by sight and by our own strength and invites an illusion to be formed around our lives. It means that we live out of step with reality. You know, a boat that's sailing, like if the rudders just, if, if they have a direction, but they're just a bit off, they're a bit out of touch with reality, they're a bit off in their, in their navigation, uh, it might not make a huge difference over the course of a mile or two, but over the course of 100 miles or 200 miles or 400 miles, just a slight distortion of, of, of the rudder from where it needs to be going, the boat that's heading to Nova Scotia winds up in Brazil. So it is with our own lives, over the years, over the decades. If we're living our life out of step with reality, not attuned to the activity of God in our lives, not prayerfully, not in worship, not silently reflecting on our lives. Let's add other spiritual disciplines to it. Not exercising uh, fasting, not reading our Bibles, not spending time in fellowship with other believers. All of these spiritual disciplines If we live our life not doing any of those things, things become askew. Might not see much difference in a year, two years. But over the course of decades, you've got two different trajectories. One person living in illusion and one person moving more and more closer to reality, which is creation laced with the activity of God. And here's the thing. If you are living a delusion, if you are living under an illusion that you've got this life, you've got this, if you're living under that illusion, it will end badly for you. It will end badly. It will end abruptly. You'll wake up next to Leah, shocked. Reality will confront you hard. Now, there's a lot to say about Aaliyah, and we'll, we'll get there. Let, let's now shift to our next point, providence. Providence. So there's prayer, and, and now providence. And, you know, so prayer, but also I, it's an endorsement of, of what Christians have identified as spiritual disciplines, the study of Scripture, uh, prayer, silence, fasting, worship. Many of these things are what the faithful servant were doing. 
They're doing those things. But here's the thing. And, and because, remember, the servant does those things. And what does he experience in his life? The sweet providence of God. And it's sweet. You see it in his prayer. A safe journey, careful negotiation, clear evidence of God's hand and his success. Jacob, on the other hand. Can you imagine what Jacob is thinking after this whole thing happens? What, God, are you there? Where are you? He wonders. And maybe, maybe we wonder the same. We've, we've encountered a hard providence, much like Jacob. And we wonder if God is, is really there. Are you involved, God? How can you let this wreck happen? Jacob experiences a hard providence, which means that God is involved in his life. Now, you may say, well, how do we know that? Because I didn't see God's name mentioned at all. You're right. God's name wasn't mentioned in those 30 verses that, that Jay read for us. But there's no doubt that God is there. And the clue is the mention of the stone. Verse 2, verse 3, verse 8, verse 10. Five times this stone is mentioned. In Jacob's life, you know what the stone represents? God. God's presence. Remember after he has the vision, what does he do? He commemorates the place with a stone that he pours oil upon. How awesome is this place? Stones are, are oftentimes used to represent God. Samuel uh, raised his Ebenezer, his stone of help, to the Lord. Stone. We, we, we hear that word stone in these verses. It's a reminder that even though God doesn't appear to be there, God is there. And I'll also, I'll also tell you, as Jacob's working that second set of seven years out in the fields reflecting on everything, he's got to believe it, that God is with him. I mean, how ironic that the very thing that he did is the very thing that happens to him. You can't, you, that kind of irony, there's some sort of author writing this story of Jacob's life, and he, he's, he's got to see that. And I believe he does. Bruce Waltke says, For Jacob, God's providence becomes a means of, dis of discipline to transform Jacob's character. Jacob is receiving a hard providence, but it's not merely punitive in his life. It's also loving. It's God's hand of discipline which is going to make Jacob into the person that he is to become. And maybe, maybe you haven't been attuned to God. Maybe you don't pray ever. Maybe you haven't picked up a Bible in 20 years and you go, go, go through life and you're, you know, you're, you're kind of flexing your muscles on Instagram or your looks or you're polishing the resume, you're crushing homemaking and you're leaning into those things but not leaning into God. I would say this, what God is calling in this passage for us to do is to be like the faithful servant, to lean into the Lord through prayer, through silence, and through all the disciplines that we saw in the faithful servant. But even if you haven't done those things, and if God has set his love on you, 
know that even, even, even when you don't do those things as Jacob did, God is working out his purposes, and it doesn't always feel great. C.S. Lewis has a great quote. He says, imagine that you're, that you're a living house, and God comes in to rebuild the house that is you. And at first, you understand what God is doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew those jobs needed to be done, and so you're not surprised. But presently... He starts knocking down the house, or knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is God up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Jacob needs radical change. And this is one of the ways that God brings that change through this hard providence. Now, it would be simple, though, it would be too simple, and I want to warn us from thinking this way that if we have suffering in our lives that is a direct result of us not doing, not praying enough. And that's not what, what I'm, well, it's not what I'm saying. That's not what the scriptures say. Remember Job's friends when he was suffering? They knew because he was suffering, he had to have some sin in his life. He had to have some failure. And they were trying to figure out what it was. And they're condemned, they were condemned for that thesis. That's not how it works. God's ways are unsearchable and beyond our comprehending. But nonetheless... These spiritual disciplines of prayer and silence and Bible study, when the hard times do come, they, they tether us to God. They, they help us to, as James says, consider it all joy when we face suffering and trials of various kinds. Because we know that God is making sturdy our faith and our lives in him. They help us weather those storms. In God's providence, make no mistake, God's providence is at work in this chapter here. As Jacob lay appalled in his bed, and Leah is just thrown around like a little prop in all of this, as Jacob is looking in disappointment at Leah, and Laban is thinking, God, I finally got rid of her. The one, Leah, that everyone rejected, that the world rejects, doesn't have the beauty, doesn't have anything. She's the one. She's the one that God's going to work through. Latent in her womb is Judah. And you remember what the scriptures say about Judah? There's going to be a lion that comes from you, Judah. And the scepter won't depart from him. And Judah gives birth to David. David gives birth to Jesus. And Jesus arrives he came, he worked hard, he worked perfectly, he worked exhaustively to get himself a bride. He gave his very life for her, his bride, the church. And here's the thing, we, his church, Christ's church, we weren't just ugly, we were dead. God chose a dead woman to be the, son, to be the wife of his, of his, for his son. We were dead, but as Christ's love comes to us, 
this power of the Spirit breathes life into us. And, and here, here's the thing. By the power, grace, mercy of God, God is be- He's giving us beauty treatments. This is what Ephesians 5 says. That as God washes us, His church, His bride, we will be one day presented in splendor, without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish. We're getting beauty treatments to be fit for Christ. And you know one of the ways in which we get those beauty treatments? The disciplines. Prayer, Bible study, silence, worship, fasting. These things, they're beauty treatments. They make us fit. For Christ, they make us like Jesus. And I want to close with um, an illustration that I think is very helpful as we think about the, di- the spiritual disciplines. It's, a, it's an illustration that came from uh, a pastor of ours in Iowa. That it's, just, it's stuck. Um, maybe it's just because I see oil rigs everywhere. But he, imagine, imagine an oil rig, and it's working. It's... it's, it's exerting its power, its machinery, and the thing is pumping, it's working, it's working. Now, if, if an oil rig is over no oil, I'm no rig specialist, I don't know what exactly comes up out of the ground if that thing's pumping. I assume it's muck and mire and earth goop. I don't know exactly what comes up. And that's not good. But if, those same, if that same activity is taking place, that same energy, that same uh, effort being expended over oil, liquid gold rises. In the same way, the spiritual disciplines, it's work, and if the Spirit is in it, and if it's done over the foundation of Christ's love, prayer, silence, meditation, scripture, meditating on the Scriptures, Scripture reading, fasting, up comes love. We're made more beautiful. But if it's not done on the foundation of Christ's love for us, if those spiritual disciplines are done to get Christ's love and not out of God's love, muck and mire and pharisaical goop rises to the surface and we become embittered and we, become, we start looking down on others. The distinction is so key. And that's why we remind ourselves every week of this love of Christ. God is working out His purposes in this moment. Poor Leah probably is the one that's the most confused in all of this, and yet she's the one where the hope is. She's the one that has in her the, the one that's going to save the world. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for this story, which is so divinely orchestrated. We pray that it would change us into the people that you want us to be. We pray that these other um, activities of our service, the sacraments and singing and um, uh, giving up of, taking up of the offering, all of these things would contribute to our beautification. That they would be beauty treatments that make us fit for Jesus. We pray in Christ's name, amen.